You're listening to the Live Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Good morning, Life Church Livonia! What's up? I'm back. I'm Alex. I'm the lead pastor here. Great to see you. Past two weeks, we've had some other speakers, and I'm really thankful to be back here with you. Back to our series, Jesus Is. Uh, in this series, we've been looking at the question, who is Jesus? And we're not trying to answer that question for Jesus. We're asking Jesus to answer that question for himself. In week one, we talked about how Jesus is the resurrection and the life, because we all need to be moved from death to life and from old to new. In week two, we looked at Jesus as the bread of life, the only thing that truly satisfies. In week three, we talked about how Jesus is the light of the world because we all need light to push back the darkness of our world. And last week, we took a break for Mother's Day as Marcy preached on having less fear being fear less. And it was such a wonderful sermon. If you missed it, I cannot encourage you enough to go back and take a listen to it on our YouTube page. Today we're going to be back in the Jesus Is series, taking a look at Jesus' statement, I am the door. Now different translations translate this different ways. Some say I'm the gate. Some say I'm the sheep gate. Some say I'm the door. But they're all the same thing, okay? So don't get, don't get a caught up on that today. I am the door is Jesus' statement. And if you've been around here for a little bit, you'll know that I am a huge, and I mean huge, fan of Pixar movies. Big, big fan. I'm a huge fan of Ed Catmull. So much respect for him and the partnership he had with Steve Jobs to create classics like Toy Story. And so when I heard I am the door, you gotta know, the first thing I thought of was Monsters, Inc. Come on, how can you not think of Monsters, Inc. when you think of the door? And if you're unfamiliar with the movie Monsters, Inc., Monsters, Inc. is an energy company, okay? And it's a company that creates power for the city of Monstropolis through capturing screams, which they then conveniently convert to energy for your consumption. (laughs) And in their energy facility, they have a warehouse of doors. They scan a card, a door comes down, it clicks into place in a station, it gets activated, and then that door lets them pass from the monster world into the human world. And every door represents a child's bedroom where the scaring monster sneaks in once the door is activated. They scare the child, the child wakes up and lets out a blood-curdling scream that is conveniently converted into energy for your home consumption. The kid wakes up, you know. (laughs) How many of you seen the movie? Comment in the comment section. If you have a favorite character, I want to know your favorite character. I'm torn personally. Gotta love Mike Wazowski, especially his chemistry with Roz. Unbelievable writing there. And then John Goodman is such a good Sully. I mean, he's really hard to beat. However, the job is incredibly dangerous at Monsters, Inc. Because they believe that humans are actually incredibly poisonous. So to work as a scarer, It's not all fun and games. This is really dangerous stuff. It's not for the faint of heart. Despite the close connection with the human world, though, there has never been a breach into the monster world. Until now, that is. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a movie, you know what I'm saying? At first, as as the first act of the movie ends, there's a breach as a little girl Mike and Sully call Boo 
makes her way into the world of monsters, and it becomes Mike and Sully's mission to get her back home. But the challenge they face is in a world of doors, there's only one door that gets them to where they want to go. There's only one door that leads back to Boo's home, and if they can't find that door again, Boo will never make it home. Now, the rest of the movie details each and every obstacle that Mike and Sully have to overcome in order to get Boo back home through her door, the only door that gets her home. Now, one of the things I love about the movie, and I don't think Pixar intended this in this film, but I just love how they distill such complex things down into such easy-to-understand analogies. And one of the things I think this story gets at, despite their intentions, is the idea that there are two worlds that are connected somehow. And there's a kind of door that gets us from one world into the other. I've been a pastor for quite a while now, and I've been a person for, you could say, my whole life, really. And as I talk to people, one of the things that is incredibly clear in every person I've ever met is that there's a feeling this world is not right, and that we are not right. That something has gone horribly wrong and things are not the way they're supposed to be. That somehow this world we exist in is more like the world of monsters than it is the world of humans. We feel it in our society when we see injustice happening. I just think of some of the racially charged shootings over the past couple years. We see some people being treated as less valuable or important than others or some people being wrongfully killed or convicted. There's something inside of us that just goes, that's not right. This is not the way the world should be. We feel it in our relationships, when selfishness, when pride, when bitterness and insecurity create rifts that seem impossible to overcome. We feel it in our own bodies as we struggle with our sense of comfort and security in our own skin. We feel it with our health, which rarely feels like it's going in the right direction. We feel it in our own souls as we struggle with confidence, as we struggle to find peace, as we struggle with gratitude for the gift of life, as we struggle with our own sense of self-worth. We long for this world where all things, where every relationship and every circumstance is made right and good and well, where we exist in total harmony and unity, socially, interpersonally, and with our own souls. The Bible speaks to this longing and says that that world we long for is the world that God created us for. But it chronicles in Genesis chapter 3 how Adam and Eve, the two original human beings, sinned. And when they sinned, they introduced death and destruction into creation in a way that has since twisted and broken every single part of the world that was originally created good. Everything outside of us and everything inside of us has been tainted by sin. And every human person is on this mission, this unspoken goal, looking for the door that takes us back from this world of monsters, back to the world we were made for. Now, a door for our definition today, and just in general, it's simply a threshold. It's a line. It's a boundary. Even when we think about maybe someone having a clay house of some kind without a physical wooden door, we would still call the doorway to their home a door. Right? The door isn't about the wooden thing. It's about the line that we cross to pass from one place to another. 
A door is what we pass through to move from one place to another. It is the threshold, the point of transition, the line between out here and in there, the line from here to what's next. We all search for and need this transition from where we are to where we want to go. And that's why we all need a door. So with that in mind, Jesus says in his I am statements, I am the door. So what does Jesus mean when he says that he is the door and why does that matter? That's the question we're going to be looking at today. <clears throat> we're going to start by reading our, in our passage, which is in John 10 verses 1 through 10. If you have your Bible, your phone, please open it to that. And uh, Jesus gives us this analogy in this chapter that some of the original readers don't quite understand and that I very much did not understand. And so what I want to do today is we're going to read through this and then I want to break down the analogy in order to help answer our question. So we're going to start here in verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate, or the door. Whoever's, whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. When I re first read this passage and, and this metaphor Jesus uses, he tells the Pharisees, it says the Pharisees didn't understand it. And I was like, bro, not just the Pharisees. I feel like it's my first time in Ikea and I have no idea <laughs> what's going on here or how to find my way through this maze. Because there's a lot going on here. Jesus is the door, but then he's also a shepherd, but then he is also, who are the sheep and what's going on with the thieves and robbers? So... Um, I want to help break it down here a little bit for you. Jesus is using sheep in this analogy because sheep were just an incredibly familiar part of what went on, uh, just one of the incredibly um, central resources in the time that he was speaking in, right? It would be like if I told you, man, I'm more torn up than 275 right now. You know what I mean? Like you, you know what I'm talking about. Or if I asked you to fill in Detroit, basketball, right? You, you know what I'm saying. Or if I said, hey, it's not f official until it's Facebook official, there's a get it factor where because that's just a part of the air we breathe, I don't need to explain what a 275 is. I don't need to explain basketball. I don't need to explain Facebook. But we don't have the get it factor of this analogy of the sheep because we're way too far removed from it. So I had to do some research in order to understand what Jesus is talking about here. And we're going to hit three things today. I want to talk about sheep. I want to talk about the sheep pens. And I want to talk about the thieves and the robbers. Okay, so we're going to start with sheep. So sheep were integral to Jewish society. It was a major part of their lives and lifestyle. 
And it was a major part of their worship. I mean, a, a livestock uh, of sheep provided wool for clothing, for blankets, for shelter, for tent making. It, it provided milk and cheese and meat for food. But they were also used as sacrifices in the temple worship that is detailed in the Old Testament. This was a major, major, major part of Jewish culture. Major part of worship, of practice, and key to the Jewish identity. Sheep were a vital part of the lives that Jesus was speaking to. But as I got to thinking about that, I thought, okay, you know, that's great, but weren't there other animals, like, a part of their lives too? Why, why didn't Jesus use an analogy about horses? or oxen, or goats, or, you know, why, why sheep? And one of the interesting things about sheep is um, they don't really survive very long on their own in the wilderness. Uh, they need intervention to live a long and full life. Uh, they cannot and do not really defend themselves. I mean, when they see danger coming, they have two responses, run away, or point their head at the thing trying to kill them and run right at it, which is, it's a mixed bag in terms of effectiveness, right? <laughs> oh, that thing's trying to kill me. I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna point my face at it and run towards it. Some of you have this strategy, okay? And you can attest it does not usually work out the way you hope it will. On top of that, sheep are incredibly prone to disease. There are these flies that, say a sheep was wandering and it, it got caught in some briars and got a cut. There's a kind of fly that will lay eggs in the sheep's wound. And then when those eggs hatch, it inevitably creates an infection that then is deadly to the sheep. So whether from predators or whether from parasites or whether uh, from just wandering off on their own, sheep are prone to death. Even today, sheep live the longest when they have a shepherd to take care of them. I saw an interesting study done in 2017 where someone, I think to their own surprise, went, huh, you know, I would think with how progressive we are with uh, cultivating the environment and not, you know, lording our humanness over non-human things that it would be better for sheep to be out on their own in the wild and not exploited. But to much to this researcher's surprise, even in modern day, Sheep still live the longest, are the healthiest, and have the fullest quality of life when they have a shepherd, not when they're on their own. And so when Jesus is comparing uh, us to sheep, he's saying that we need a shepherd. That our fullness and highest quality of life, uh, that we are prone to wandering to destruction on our own, and our highest quality of life comes from having a shepherd who will protect us, care for us, provide for us, and lead us out of danger and into wholeness. And this is true. This is just true of human civilization. Think about it. This is why we have formed governments. This is why we make laws. This is why we have religions <clears throat> and philosophies to help direct us, to help lead us out of our uh, natural inclination towards destruction and into a whole constructive community to try and create some leadership, some purpose, some protection, some longevity for human life. One of the ways shepherds care for these sheep, <clears throat> one of the ways they help lead these sheep, is through the use of a sheep pen. Now, like you can see on the screen here, <clears throat> the sheep pen is a wall. It's about three to four feet in height, and it keeps the sheep from wandering away, from being attacked by um, a predator, 
or by being stolen when the sheep is at rest. So at the end of the day, there, there are two kinds of sheep pens. There's a kind like the one you see here on the screen that might be just outside of a town or a high trafficked area. Um, that's one kind of sheep pen where it's built out of stones and it's, it's pretty permanent. But there's another kind of sheep pen as well <clears throat> that's just kind of made hodgepodge out in the wilderness when it's time to go down for a rest and the sheep need a place to be contained. And the purpose of the sheep pen was this. When it was time for rest at the end of the day, the shepherd needed a place to store the sheep at night so that wolves couldn't just come and start picking sheep off without an obstacle, and so that thieves couldn't come and start stealing sheep, and so the sheep themselves wouldn't just wander away willy-nilly. Now one of the interesting things about sheep pens is you can see there's an opening here, but there's no physical door. And what would happen is, in a sheep pen much like this one, the shepherd himself would lay down in the opening in the night and the shepherd himself became the door. The shepherd himself was what the uh, predators and what the thieves and robbers had to go through in order to get to the sheep. And in the stone one that might have been outside a village, there would often be multiple flocks stored there and uh, there would be a hired gatekeeper <clears throat> who would land that opening and be the door for multiple flocks. In the morning when it was time to graze again, the shepherd would come and call out to his fold of sheep, even though there were bunches of folds of sheep in a pen like this, and only his sheep would come out and follow him. And you might think, wow, that's amazing. Like, how do they even know? But we're familiar with this, right? We have dogs, we have cats, and we know when we call their name as their owner, they respond very differently than if just some random person who's over at our house calls their name. And that uh, we know that if, if, um, they, if our pet has to choose to follow us or someone else, they're gonna choose us, because they trust us. It's, it's no different with the sheep. So the sheep pen was not a prison for the sheep, it's this temporary shelter to keep the sheep from danger while they are at rest. So when Jesus calls himself the door, he's saying that he is what we must enter through to become part of the fold of God, that he is the threshold, the line, the boundary that we must cross to be a part of God's flock. And he is the line, the threshold, the boundary that any danger that would do us harm must cross to get to us. He is our line in the sand, our way to move from where we are to where we were made to be. He is the door from this world of monsters back to the world where we belong, a world made right and good. It's interesting in the book of Exodus, as Moses is telling Pharaoh to let his people go, Pharaoh would say no. And then God would send a plague to show Pharaoh his power. And then Moses would come to Pharaoh again and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh would say no. And then God would show some kind of plague to show his power. And the final time God sends Moses to Pharaoh, Moses says, listen, this time the angel of death is coming. And the angel of death is going to kill the firstborn from everything in Egypt, human and non-human. And part of why this was an important plague is Pharaoh and the Egyptians believed about Pharaoh that he was God incarnate. That Pharaoh was a human expression of the deity. And that Pharaoh believed about himself, he was the God of the nation who determined what was wrong and what was right. And that he held the power of life and death in his hand. And so when God tells Pharaoh 
that he is going to do this. I mean, Pharaoh had used this power of life and death. Pharaoh, multiple pharaohs had used this power over 400 years to kill and oppress a countless number of Israelites. And Yahweh in this taking of life is showing Pharaoh, no, 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 no. You are not the God of this nation. You are not the God of this people. You are not the God of life and death. In fact, you are not God at all. I'm God. And then God instructs Moses, hey, the angel of death will only, you will only be safe from the angel of death if you do one thing. You have to take a spotless lamb on whom there is no blemish. That lamb needs to be killed. And then you need to spread the blood of that lamb on the doors to your home. And when the angel of death sees the blood of the spotless lamb on your door, death will not be allowed to enter your house. God chose this method in the Old Testament to help us understand what Jesus is saying here. That Jesus is the door. And when he died on the cross, he put his blood on that door to save us from death. To keep death out of the fold of God. He was the door then. He's still the door today. So this analogy, we're the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd who is our door. But there's a character we haven't talked about yet. And that character is the thieves and the robbers. Jesus says in verse 8, All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. Now Jesus, when, when he says all who came before him, who does he mean, do you think? I wondered, is he calling the Pharisees the thieves and robbers? Um, maybe the prophets of old? Are, are they the thieves and robbers? Or, or is it someone else? And um, he may be including the Pharisees in that. You know, it's, it's hard to say. I think if I were just to kind of anecdotally interpret this, I would say, it seems to me he's warning the Pharisees here. They could be included as thieves and robbers, but I think he's giving them an opportunity to not be. I don't think it's possible at all, actually, that Jesus is referring to Moses or Elijah or any other prophet who came before him because they spoke God's word and truth on God's behalf through uh, God's direct instruction to his people. And that certainly did not steal, kill, or destroy the nation of Israel. It, it was meant to bring them life. So I don't think we can include them in who Jesus is talking about. So the question is, who is Jesus talking about? Well, we know from history that there were 11 to 12 other people who claimed to be the Messiah around the time of Jesus. There were three different messianic figures that rose up right around the time Jesus was born. And one of them was even named Anthrogenes the Shepherd. The others rose and fell shortly after his death. And each of these messianic figures were trying to free Israel from Rome so that God's people might be sovereign again as a sign that God was with them. Jesus uses the example of these physical messiahs to show us a spiritual truth. Do you know where the people that followed these messiahs ended up? They ended up crucified on crosses they were often put at the entryways to major cities like Jerusalem. And it was a way the Romans sent a message to the Jewish people to say, your salvation lies in us, not in any would-be Messiah. And they too tried to make an example of Jesus, hanging him on a cross just outside the city of Jerusalem. The difference between Jesus and these other would-be Messiahs who were also crucified on crosses was the resurrection. Jesus' death ended in life. These other messiahs ended only in death 
and so did all the people that followed them. And Jesus' resurrection catalyzed the Christian church, which has affected the globe more profoundly than any other philosophy or religion in human history. So it seems to me that Jesus is saying that any other would-be Messiah, past, present, or future, is a thief and a robber who would steal sheep from God's flock and lead them away from life and life to the full and instead lead them to death. Now, I don't think that these would-be messiahs are just totally concentrated into anyone who claimed to be the Jewish messiah between 81 and 8090. I think we can accurately apply Jesus' words here uh, about thieves and robbers to anyone or anything that we treat like a savior. I think these saviors fall into two categories. I think there's false saviors and there's functional saviors. A false savior is something or someone other than Jesus that we trust in to be our way, our truth, our life, our salvation, to lead us out of this broken world into a whole one. A false savior would be any other religion, philosophy, or way of life that does not submit to Jesus as Lord. Now, originally, I was going to go through the different major world religions and show their distinctives and talk a little bit about here's how these different ones believe. Like I said at the beginning of this series, every religion has to answer two questions. What do we do about the problem of evil and what's ultimately real about reality? But that's going to take too much time. So you're going to have to come back for the way, the truth, and the life in two weeks because that is when I will go through some of these other major world religions and talk about some distinctives. But Jesus in claiming to be the door is claiming that these other religions are not the door. They are not the way to God and they are not the way to salvation. So to choose a false savior is to simply say, not Jesus, not Jesus. A functional savior, on the other hand, <clears throat> a functional savior is not something we ultimately trust in for our salvation, to save us from sin, to save us from brokenness, but a functional savior is what we trust in to bring us life and life to the full right now. An addiction to food, perhaps, could be a functional savior, where we put our stress, where we put our anxiety, where we put our anger. An addiction to a substance, perhaps to our phones or to the internet an addiction to pornography, etc. Even an addiction to a good thing like fitness, right? These can be functional saviors that we use to put, uh, to, to lead us to life and life to the full instead of Jesus. A romantic relationship, even a marriage relationship can be a functional savior. I have known and counseled many marriages that have been under great pressure, stress, and strain because the spouses have a cyclical fight around one person not satisfying the other's needs. Needs like the need to be seen at my deepest level. The need to be known and valued at my deepest level. The need to be fully needed, to be fully accepted. The need to, for true security or true satisfaction. One or both of them are frustrated in the relationship because the other person isn't meeting a need that only Jesus can really provide. Money is often a functional savior. I may trust in Jesus for my eternal security, but I trust in money for my earthly security. Functional saviors are simply idols that we use to fill a need in our own souls that we have not yet satisfied 
in Jesus. Because all those needs I, I mentioned, they're not bad. They are just eternally deep. And no temporal, finite person can fully satisfy an eternal need. Augustine says it like this in his Confessions. He says, We all have an ache for infinite love, for happiness, for ecstasy, for God. And we put that ache into finite things on earth. We all long for the real behind the real. We cannot get from the temporal what we were designed to receive from the eternal. A functional Savior is when we say with our lives, hearts, minds, Jesus and. We're not saying not Jesus, but we're saying Jesus and this thing. That's where I find life and life to the full. These functional saviors and false saviors, though, always promise something they can't deliver. They promise life to the full. That desire for a fulfilling life, that's a gift from God to you. It's a core need that every human being has and that is meant to pull us in search of him and that was made to be fulfilled by him and him alone. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The Christian says creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no thing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy, echo, or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and help others to do the same. Functional saviors and false saviors promise a life to the full they can never fully deliver. And in the end, they lead to death. So as we reflect on Jesus' statement, I am the door, where do you find yourself this morning? Are you looking for a fulfilling life in chasing a false savior or a functional savior? If you're in that place, you've almost certainly already felt how false these things are and that they can't deliver on their promises. We end up feeling stolen from, wasted years, wasted time, wasted money, wasted energy that we thought we were going to get this payoff of fulfillment from, and then it just never came. Maybe that you've already began to taste the destruction in the relationships, the destruction in your circumstances. Are you living a Jesus and life this morning or a not Jesus life this morning? I just want us to hear Jesus' words again. Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. 
They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is extending that life to the full to each and every one of us this morning. And when he says life and life to the full, I just don't want us to make this mistake here. He's not saying, I'll give you an A version of the thing you're getting a B in. I'll just give you a better version of what you already have. Friends, we don't even know a life that's not totally contextualized by death. We don't even have a, we don't have a picture of life without death. Think about that. Our life now is totally defined by when we were born and when we're going to die. Our bodies die, our families die, our friends die. We even see it in small, silly things in our world, like the makeup industry, for example. The makeup industry's whole point <laughs> is to help me not look as old as I really am, meaning not as close to death as I really am. It's a small and silly thing, but it's a way that we just see that death is such a part of our consciousness that we're desperately just trying to avoid it. The kind of life that Jesus offers is not just a nicer version of what we already got. It's a totally new life. It's a life that we were intended to live which is why he describes it as being born again. It is a life that is no longer defined by the threat of death or by slavery to sin, but is instead defined by the purposes of eternity, which God is inviting you into now. This life that we were made for and search for, the life that we try to create, that we stumble through it and fail, this is the life that Jesus has to offer to us. It is the life not of the world of monsters, but of the world of humans. And Jesus is the door between those two worlds. And so this morning, if you're living with a functional Savior or a false Savior, <clears throat> I just want to invite you to pray with me. And I want to invite you to walk through the door of Jesus, that when he died on the cross, he took all your sin upon him. And when he rose from the dead, he rose to give you access to this kind of life, an eternal life. And I just want anyone who's feeling the Holy Spirit push on their heart right now, I just want to invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, Lord, we need you. God, I just ask that you would free me, Lord. That you would free me from the ways that I've been chasing unfulfilling things to give me a fulfilling life. Lord, I just surrender the functional saviors in my world that I have tried to add on to you. And Lord, I just repent of the false saviors I have followed that have promised me something they have never given. And Lord, I choose to trust you, to obey you, to submit to you as Lord, because I believe that you will give me life and life to the full. I surrender right now, Lord, and I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you just prayed with me, you just made an amazing, eternal decision. And I am asking that you reach out to us via our digital bulletin so we can help you take your next steps and celebrate this new life that you have just walked through the door into. God bless.